Again, I want to welcome all those who are visiting with us this morning. We are so glad that you're here and have chosen to worship God, our Savior, uh, together with us as a church family. I want to let you know that you have landed here in sort of the beginning of a new sermon series for us that we've called Getting to Know Jesus. It's a sermon series where we are going through the Gospel of Luke, one of the four accounts of our Lord's earthly life and ministry, and um, one of the four accounts of uh, really the, the sort of gospel narrative. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're in chapter 4 this morning. And as the sermon series, the title of the series suggests, Getting to Know Jesus, that's, that's very much what we want to do. We want to look in the Bible and there get to know Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, implicit in that is the notion that the best place to get to know Jesus is not somewhere else outside the Bible, not in our own imaginations about what Jesus is like, but actually what we are told in God's Word about Jesus. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at His Son. If you look at His Son, in order to do that, you come to His Word. And so this morning, we're going to see that the greatest question about Jesus that the people in the Bible had is who is Jesus? It's a good basic question to ask. Who is Jesus? And in our text this morning, we're going to see that not only is he the Son of God, but that title, the Son of God, carries with it three offices or three roles. That he is prophet, the great prophet. That he is priest, our great high priest. And he is king, king of kings and lord of lords. And he is all those things, prophet, priest, and king, for the benefit of his people. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for him. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Praise the Lord. Three points if you're taking notes this morning. Number one, our high priest overcomes Satan's temptations for us. Our high priest overcomes Satan's temptations for us. We see that in verses 1 to 13. Point number two, our prophet 
brings good news of salvation to us. Our prophet brings good news of salvation to us. We see that in verses 14 to 30. And number three, our, our king uses his authority to bless us. Our king uses his authority to bless us. Verses 31 to 44. This section of scripture, Matthew chapter 4, includes two very well-known sections of scripture that are in various circles of the Christian world oftentimes cited or appealed to. The first is the wilderness temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see that in verse 1 and 2 that Jesus has finished his baptism. John has given us his genealogy at the end of chapter 3. At his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus. At the end of the genealogy, the last words there of chapter 3, we're told that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we see the Spirit driving Christ into the wilderness where he will be tempted over 40 days, verse 2, by Satan himself. And the main thing that's at play is this claim that Jesus is the Son of God. So notice in the first temptation in verse 3, Satan comes to Jesus and says to him, if you are the Son of God. Or look again down in verse 9. He takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God. The pressing question, the pressing issue in this passage is, who is Jesus? Is he really the Son of God? And the entire context of this temptation really harkens back to people who were previously called the Son of God. So Adam is mentioned at the end of chapter 3. He's told that he is the Son of God. Now you recall the garden, where in the garden... Satan tempts Adam, and Adam fails the temptation. Now Jesus is being presented to us as the second Adam. But not just Adam, but Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where God says that uh, Israel was his child, and out of Egypt I have called my son. And in verse 2 of Hosea 11, he points out that when he had called his children out of Egypt, they worshipped the Baals, they worshipped idols and not God. Israel, as a nation, is called God's son. And so the wilderness temptations of Israel are here in the background of this text too. We're being presented the true son of God. And the true Israel, which is Christ. Three times Satan tempts our Lord. Three different temptations. Notice he comes in verse 2 when the Lord has not eaten for 40 days. And guess what? He's hungry. (laughs) We see his humanity, right? Satan loves to tempt us in our weakest points. So the enemy comes and he tempts him first of all with provision. There in verse 3, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And you see how our Lord responds. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Again, quoting from Israel's uh, wilderness wanderings. And he, and he says there, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. When Matthew tells his story in Matthew chapter 4, he adds the rest of the verse. But he shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan's not deterred. He comes a second time, and he tempts him not with provision, but this time with power. 
verses 5 to 7, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then worship me, it will all be yours. Sometimes Christians debate whether or not Satan could really do this. I think that debate is a clue that we're not Jesus. The moment you begin to entertain if Satan really can deliver something to you that he's promised, you're already losing the temptation. But he comes to Jesus and he says this, and notice what Jesus' response is. He quotes again, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Satan is thrusting himself in the place of God willing to trade power for worship. Christ says, no, 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 no. Worship and service belong only to God. Satan's not deterred. He comes a third and final time, verses 9 to 11. Look there with me in Luke 4. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from him, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now notice, Satan now begins to use the word himself. Twisting the scripture from Psalm 91. Turning the scripture into an occasion not to trust God, but to test God. Striking to me. And after the Lord himself has quoted the scriptures twice, Satan thinks himself clever enough to quote the scripture to the Lord. I want to come back to that in a moment in the application. But notice what Jesus says in verse 12. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. God is to be trusted. He is to be worshipped. He is to be served. But he is not to be tested. Interesting thing about all of these temptations is that in God's own time, Christ received all these things. Christ would multiply loaves and fish and feed thousands who were hungry. But he did it for the people, not himself. And Christ would receive, by the end of the gospel, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him, not by Satan, but by God. And if he wanted, he could command legions of angels to serve him. This suggests to us sometimes, beloved, that the best way to fight temptation is to realize we will receive what we're tempted with in a holy way if we wait on God, if we trust in him. In all of these temptations, it's been said, it's been noted that Jesus relies on God's word. He quotes God's word. He trusts God's word. And you can see something of Jesus' view of the scripture in the way that he uses it in these temptations. Number one, it's clear that Jesus thinks the scripture is applicable in our temptation. Number two, he believes the scripture to be truly the word of God. He quotes it as an authority here. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't, he doesn't quibble. He stands on God's word, just as we were saying a moment ago. And it's armed with God's word that he defeats Satan's temptations. Now, the, the, the typical move here in the sermon by the preacher is to then say to the people, trust God's word and overcome your temptations. 
And I want to say to you that if we hide God's word in our hearts, we will not sin against him. Scripture says that. That, that we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we are to hold fast to God's word. But if we're boxing with Satan, we're not likely to be Jesus in that contest. Why is this text given to us? Well, some secondary application may be, you know, quote God's word, trust God's word, stand on God's word. But the primary application here is Jesus is God's son. And Satan says, if you are the son of God, then do this or do that. And Christ resists with God's word. He's demonstrating secondarily that we may stand on God's word in temptation, but he's demonstrating primarily that he is, in fact, the son of God. That Satan is not so subtle that he could do with Jesus what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. That Satan is not so effective that he can cause the Christ, the Son of God, to grumble against God about hunger the way he caused Israel in the wilderness to grumble against God because of their hunger. Now, I think our primary application is to look at this text and say, Christ is God's Son. Christ has endured temptation in our place. In our temptation, we flee to Christ, who has conquered our adversary. Jesus is the Son of God who stands in our place enduring the temptation that, that often overcomes us. And so here I think we're seeing modeled for us what we use as our call to worship from Hebrews chapter 4. Remember what it says there in verse 15 that Christ is our, our high priest. He, he has been tempted in every way like we have been, yet what? Unlike us, without sin. And so he has become that high priest now to whom we can go and find grace and mercy and help in our times of need. It's Christ who delivers us. It's Christ who stands in as priest for us and offers both our righteousness and a sacrifice for us. The God-man passed the test that every man would surely fail. This means, that, again, that our best, in our temptations, our best strategy is to run to Jesus. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is our priest who prays and intercedes for us. He is our victory and our confidence. However well we know the word of God, let us not begin to think that we know it so well that we don't need to first go to Jesus. That we need to first trust him. Flee to Christ in your temptations. He is our high priest who has overcome the tempter on our behalf. This brings us to our second point. The second thing we want to get to know Jesus in. He is our prophet that brings good news of salvation. You see that there in verses 14 to 30. Verses 14 and 15 gives us a summary. Again, notice in the power of the Spirit, Jesus leaves the wilderness temptation. He has defeated Satan. And you see that ominous note there at the end of verse 13. Satan leaves him until an opportune time. Let me say one other thing about temptation. <laughs> we, we, we may be victor, victorious in one battle, but winning one battle doesn't win the war. We need vigilance and, and consistency and resolve, as Matt was talking before, about running to Christ in this war, for even Satan would come back to Christ at a later time. 
But Jesus comes now back to Galilee, verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. Um, He's preaching in that power. The Spirit has anointed him. and, And throughout all the surrounding country, he is being really praised for his teaching in the synagogues. Then verse 16, he comes to his hometown. See, there he comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. The text says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It's like going home and visiting Mama's church, right? It's what you do. You're home for Christmas. You're home for the holidays. Mama's going to church, and she looks at you like you're going to church. That ain't really a question. You, you got to get up and go to church. And, but this was Jesus' custom. So he, here's an aside. Notice that he goes to the synagogue regularly. It was, it was his custom We live in a day when a lot of Christian leaders and a lot of Christians tell us that going to church really isn't a necessary part of the Christian life. You don't need to do that regularly. They tell us that the church has too many problems and that their faith is more genuine because they're not part of the organized church or the institutional church. Now, if Jesus goes to synagogue every Sabbath, shouldn't Christians go to church every Sunday? I mean, how are we going to be like Jesus if we customarily avoid the things Jesus customarily attends. As we'll see, the synagogue of Jesus' day was in worse shape than many churches today. And yet he went. So he is in his hometown. He's in the community where he grew up. He's in the synagogue among the religious. He is where he should have been best known. We're going to see a dramatic reading of the scripture and two dramatic revelations from it. Verses 16 to 19 record in very short fashion Jesus' first sermon. See the drama there. He stands to read. They hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Because it's a scroll, it needs to be unrolled. Isaiah is a long book. It keeps unrolling respectfully, gingerly with God's word. He seems to be searching for something, a, a particular place. The text says he found the place where it is written, and that place is what we would call Isaiah chapter 61. And it reads from verses 1 and 2. Now, Isaiah 61 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah bringing the Messianic kingdom. The prophet Isaiah says that there is a prophet who is anointed to do one thing primarily, that is to preach. That's what a prophet does. He preaches the very words of God. You see in our text the three mentions of preaching here. Verse 18, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you may or may not know this, but there's a wide difference of opinion on how to understand these couple of verses in Luke 4. There There are a group of folks, a group of Christians, godly Christians, who say we read these couple of verses 
and they all have spiritual meaning and application. That what Jesus is talking about is not something social and political, but something spiritual. The, the poor here, the blind, the oppressed, are the poor, the blind, the oppressed because of sin. And indeed, when you look at Isaiah 61, Isaiah certainly has in mind that kind of salvific meaning. And there are other Christians who read this text and say, you see here then that the mission of the church is to do what Jesus did and to proclaim liberty to the poor, meaning real poor people, and to work for the liberty of the oppressed, meaning real oppressed people. And certainly, this text cannot mean less than the gospel going to poor people and the gospel going to the imprisoned and the oppressed and those who are needing liberation. How are we to understand this text? Well, I think we're best helped to understand this text if we first remember it's about Jesus and not us. This is Jesus saying to us that this prophecy in Isaiah, whatever it means, this prophecy in Isaiah, notice what he says, today in your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. Christ is the Messiah. He is the prophet who brings the announcement of God's kingdom breaking into the world. He's given us here his messianic credentials. Not so much a treatment on the the mission of a church or the role of Christians, though it has implications for that. The poor here are certainly the poor who are impoverished by their sin. But it's not less than the poor who are impoverished in the world. You read Luke's gospel and and the people who respond to Jesus are not the wealthy. It is not the strong. You read Luke's gospel and the people who respond to Jesus and follow Jesus are the poor, are the destitute, are the broken, are the beggars. The blind here are certainly those who are spiritually blinded by the God of this age and blinded by this world. But it is not unlike blind Bartimaeus who though he can't see, can't see. Who knows that Jesus is the son of David? Who knows that Jesus is the Christ? And despite all of his physical limitation, can see into spiritual reality that Christ is the great prophet who brings the messianic kingdom of God. And so we come to this text, the first thing to recognize is it's about Jesus. The second thing to recognize is Jesus did go to these very kind of people the poor and the oppressed and the broken, and proclaim, preach, teach the kingdom of God. The primary means of setting people free, whatever their social political condition, is the proclamation of the gospel. But that means that the gospel has to be so real a gospel that it addresses people in their social political condition can't be abstracted from the real world context in which people live. Israel is under Roman occupation. Israel is oppressed. Israel is crushed by Caesar's boot. And Christ comes to them preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Not the kingdom of Caesar, but the kingdom of another world. And it gives hope to people broken by the kingdom of Caesar. The gospel that we preach has to be not an escapist gospel, that's pie in the sky, by and by. It has to be a gospel that smells like pain, that smells like and feels like grit, 
that enters the world as it is and proclaims the broken people a healing Savior. So our challenge, Anacostia River Church, is not to be Jesus. Either in our temptation as though we are as clever as Christ to resist the devil by standing on the word as if we knew the word like Christ. And our temptation or our challenge is not to be Jesus as if we are the Messiahs coming into a neighborhood or coming into the world proclaiming that we are the ones who set them free. No, our our challenge is to point to the one who does, to point to the one who is in the temptation with the one being tempted to deliver them from that and to point to the one who is coming to the world in all of its brokenness with the promise of healing, with the promise of salvation, with the promise of deliverance. And that promise is a promise that comes to people while they are in their misery. This is why it's good news. This is why the angels shout joy to the world. This is why it it gives life, because it really does reach people in their brokenness. And as a church, our task is not to form a holy huddle. Our task is not to celebrate sublime things about Christ. Our task is not merely to get sort of swollen with theology and Bible knowledge and to encourage one another in such. Our task is to, yes, feed upon Christ, but go tell beggars where there's bread. Go find other lepers and tell them where there's healing. To remember that we were the ones, we were the lepers who woke up and saw Christ's victory. We didn't earn it. It was given to us. And we needed it. And like people who need it and do need it, we go in humility and gladness to tell our neighbors there is a Savior who saves to the uttermost, the blind, the lame, the imprisoned. The question is, will we embrace that really, practically, daily? You can put a church anywhere. You're located almost any block, any neighborhood in D.C. And many of our much-loved church planting friends and and new churches are, are springing up all over the city. Most of them, most of them in redeveloped parts of the city where urban has come to mean chic, not inner city. Right? Where urban has come to mean gentrified and, and redeveloped and, and nice and shiny and pretty. The Lord prosper them. The Lord grow them. The Lord make them effective. But I am convinced, and because you're sitting here with me, I trust that you are convinced too that God very much means to insert a colony of heaven in the areas of the city that are not redeveloped, in the, in the neighborhoods of the city that still where windows are broken and bottles are strewn across the street and neighbors are on PCP and neighbors are selling their bodies and, and neighbors are doing all manner of thing in their brokenness and their blindness and in their imprisonment to sin. And he means that colony of people to go out outside of the walls of the colony and to say, there's a savior, there's a priest who's been tempted like you, who knows your weaknesses and your struggles and gave his life for your salvation. His name is Jesus, the son of God, crucified for our sin, buried and three days later raised from the grave Though we, for our justification, though we are sinners. You believe in this Jesus? 
And you may never see in this life with your physical eyes again, but you will see glories you cannot imagine. You believe in Jesus, and you may still have to serve out that prison sentence for the rest of your life, but you will be free inside that little cell. You believe in Jesus, and you may not get riches as the prosperity preacher tells you on television. He lies. You may have to serve Jesus the rest of your life poor, but you will have riches in glory that cannot be imagined or counted. This is our message. Christ here, I think, gives us marching orders to go to our neighborhood and our neighbors and to make this known. This is, this is why we're here. And this is why we're praying, even as a church that isn't a year old, about the prospect of planting another church in Northeast D.C. in, in the next year. Why? Because there are people in Northeast D.C. made in God's image, experiencing all the brokenness of life that we experience. And there's a healer. There's a Savior, and we want him known. This is why we're here. This is our Jesus. He, he reveals himself in this dramatic way. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Notice the thing he says next, though. It's dramatic, too. Verse 22, all the, all the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Notice this now. They enjoy the sermon, but they miss the Savior. They enjoy what's preached, but they don't understand that here's the great prophet bringing salvation. All they see is Joseph's son. And because all they see is Joseph's son, they don't see the very fulfillment of God's promises right before their eyes. Sometimes, beloved, the truth is hidden in plain sight. Sometimes the familiar hides the fantastic. That's why most automobile accidents happen within blocks of the person's home. They stop actually observing the scenery. They've seen it so many times that they just think it's the same old thing. And the unusual thing that happens, they miss. That's why so many accidents happen in our bathrooms. We, we are so familiar and so comfortable. We move around in there in the dark and in the light, and, and we don't notice the water on the floor. And here's Jesus in the synagogue, as was his custom, with people who were probably there customarily reading the scrolls and being taught the, the prophecies of the Lord. And the Lord stands up and says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and they don't see it. They don't get it. They miss it. Beloved, maybe you're here this morning and it's your familiarity with a kind of Jesus that keeps you from seeing the real Jesus. You're familiar with the Jesus of felt boards and Sunday school. You're familiar with the Jesus in artist renderings with a beam of light over his head looking into the sky like a dreamer praying. You're familiar with the Jesus who somehow gets associated with Live a good life and be a nice kid. But you haven't yet become familiar with this surprising Jesus who shows up in the world, fully man and also fully God, who comes and says audacious things like, the promises of God are fulfilled in me. 
that if you would come to God, you must come through me, that there is no other way to come to the Father. You perhaps are not familiar with the Jesus who goes on and tells Israel here, the people in this synagogue, that even though such promises have been made to them, the the fulfillment of God's salvation is about to pass them by. You see how he does it there in, in anticipating what they're thinking? They're like, who is this? Is this Joseph's son? In other words, we know him. We watched him grow up. He's the carpenter's kid. Jesus says, listen, I know what you're thinking. You will say to me, physician, heal thyself. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, hey, we heard you did great things in Capernaum, town across the street there. Why don't you do great things here? Show us some miracles. Show us some tricks. Show Show us yourself here. And Jesus tells two stories. He says, hey, you remember the widow of Zarephath? There were a whole bunch of widows in Israel in her day. But the prophet went to Sidon. He went to a Gentile town. Or or he said, hey, you you remember Naaman, the Syrian? (laughs) There were a whole lot of lepers in Israel in Naaman's day. But it was a Syrian, it was a Gentile who received the word of the Lord and so was cleansed. And he was saying to that congregation of people, listen, you, you have so missed who I am and you have so missed what I bring that you're going to be like your ancestors. You're going you're to see the gospel go to the nations, but you, Israel, will miss it. <laughs> I think the scripture just begs us this morning sort of think about whether we would be like that company in the synagogue and miss it. Maybe maybe we've had parents who've brought us to church every Sunday of our lives. We've been brought up in church. We we know church. We know the language. We know know the rhythm. We we know when to say amen and hallelujah and when to clap and when to be quiet. And and we know when the the preacher's about to tune a little bit and, and we help him along and we know the routine we don't know Jesus. I mean, I think this is a sermon being preached to nominal Christians, if you, if you will. To people who assume that they're Christians but have no living, vital knowledge of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And the application to those people is you can miss it if you don't recognize who Jesus is. So perhaps you're here this morning and you have thought many things about Jesus, but you have not thought of him as necessary to your salvation. You have not thought of him as necessary to your forgiveness with God. You have not thought of him as the one who provides your righteousness and who suffers your judgment. You've not thought of him as your king and your Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Today this scripture is preached in your hearing just as it was then. Believe on Jesus. Trust him. Repent of sin. Come to him. And you will be saved. This is why he's come. For your salvation and mine. Don't make his coming a waste. Trust him. Believe in him. Follow him as your Lord and Savior. That brings us to our third and final point. 
Notice there, verses 31 to 41, our king exercises his authority for our blessing. Following the people's rejection in Nazareth, you see that there in verses 28 and 29, how they run him out of the synagogue. And notice here, they practically attempt what Satan only tempted with. Satan tempted him to throw himself off the pinnacle. They mean to take him to the edge of the cliff of town and throw him off the pinnacle. Verse 30, another miracle is done. He passes through unharmed. They have rejected him in Nazareth. And as far as we can tell in the rest of the Gospels, there's no account where Jesus ever goes back to Nazareth. Beloved, some rejections are final. So he leaves there and he goes uh, to Capernaum. Capernaum was something like his ministry headquarters. It's where Peter lives with his family. At, at Capernaum, Jesus re- reveals something more about it, what it means for him to be the Son of God. He repeatedly demonstrates his authority, and he demonstrates his authority in three things. Number one, he shows as Son of God his authority in teaching. See that there in verses 31 and 32? And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Matthew 7, 29 tells us that Jesus' teaching was not like the scribes and Pharisees of his day. And the way that it was different was it it wasn't full of sort of doubts and maybes and ifs. It came with exclamation marks. It was full of authority. There's certainty and confidence in his message. Our Lord taught the Old Testament like it was autobiography. There's power in his words, so much so that outwardly religious people are amazed. You know how hard it is to amaze outwardly religious people? And here he comes, he preaches God's word, and and, and they are moved as they hear this thundering, this authority in his preaching. Notice the second thing. Verses 33 to 37. He has authority over demons. It's part of what it means for him to be king. In the synagogue, there was a man, verse 33, who had the spirit of an unclean demon. (laughs) Don't don't go by that too fast. I'm going to linger on that for just a second, on the sad irony here. You know, you run into the devil in the most surprising places, don't you? You don't expect to find a demon-possessed man sitting in the synagogue. I mean, Hollywood has taught us to look in graveyards and dark forests, right, for demons. (laughs) Satan makes us look at the dead while he takes over the living, right? You see this? Satan took a man and took him to church. (laughs) We don't have to go far from the assembly of God's people (laughs) to find evidence of the enemy's work loves to still kill and destroy, and if he can, he would love to do it right where Christ is meant to be worshipped. Here this man is in the synagogue screaming. What do you think religious folks did? I bet you they came in, they saw him screaming out, and they chose the other pew. Kind of huddled the kids real close, and wife, you know, June, leans over the ward and says, I told you we should have went to First Baptist. (laughs) Have all these problems over there. But notice what Jesus did in verse 35. 
But Jesus rebuked him, the demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. With a command, the Lord Jesus Christ ruled over this evil spirit. He has the, the right and the power, the ability to control even the forces of darkness, to command Satan and his minions. That's why, verse 36, all they were, they all they were, they all were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now, Christianity does not admit into our worldview any kind of dualism, any kind of idea that there is God who is good and Satan who's an evil power and they're more or less equal and they're battling it out to see who will win. No, that's, that's another worldview. That's not the Bible's teaching about how life works. There is God and he is God alone and there's Christ his king and he is king of kings and there are no rivals. Satan and his angels were made for the pit on the day of judgment. And when God but speaks, even demons tremble. Even demons must bow and respect this one who holds all authority in his hand, Christ the King. And notice a third thing, a final thing that he has authority over. There's authority over our physical existence and well-being. See it there in verses 38 to 40. The Lord heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. This is how you know Simon Peter was a godly man. He, he got help for his mother-in-law. <laughs> She's been in bed with a high fever. Must have been bad because they, they asked Jesus for help. They're asking for a miracle. This is no common cold or flu bug. This woman is, is bedridden. And Luke here, who is a physician, when he says a high fever, I think we're meant to understand he's speaking as a physician. And he's speaking with a physician's concern. Verse 39, the Lord Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And this wasn't a fluke or fraud. Verse 40 tells us, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hand on each one, he healed them. Notice, the Lord healed various kinds of sickness. He's not healing those with vague kinds of sicknesses that, that no one can verify. This is not some tent revival with some, some fake healer, you know, planting people in the audience. And notice he healed each one. Everyone who came, he healed. He didn't turn anybody away. He didn't sell tickets. He didn't raise an offering. He sat there well into sunset, and he personally laid hands on every person that came to him, and they were healed. I often wonder why folks who claim to have such healing power and a healing ministry, why don't they just go to the hospital? Why do they, they got to rent stadiums and sell tickets and take offerings and have cameras and lights and shows. Hey, there's something demonic about that, actually. If you had that ability, and, and you made it the means not of blessing others, but of lining your pockets, you are not like Jesus. You are not doing the Lord's work in the way that he would do his work. That's why I often wonder about that. And, and I often wonder about folks who are always rebuking stuff. You know that Christians are always rebuking stuff, right? They call, <laughs> I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Satan, you are a lie, you know. And always rebuking stuff. And like, here, man, take this Kleenex, man. <laughs> you know, want to call Trump. <laughs> and I think, miss how amazing this is. Fevers don't have ears. 
Fevers don't have minds. Fevers are not sentient things. And God speaks to this virus. He speaks to whatever is causing this thing, this, this unliving, un- inanimate, in- unsentient, unthinking thing, and it obeys him. What power? What power to make even viruses calm down and go away? To control all the elements of the world. You know what's really striking about this text of Scripture? Between the demons and the people, who gets Jesus right? The demons. Verse 34, the demon cried out, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 41, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. The evil spirits get it right. They know he is the Holy One of God. Another way of referring to Jesus as the Messiah, the the chosen Savior of the world. They know that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God, the Son. Here's the point, beloved. Do not let demons that cannot be saved acknowledge more about Jesus who came to save you. And demons have sense enough to ask, as they do in verse 34, have you come to destroy or judge us? <laughs> They're certain it's going to happen. They just won't know when. And my friend, perhaps you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. Please don't stay here in your sins without asking the question of the Lord. Will you judge us? Because he will. The demons knew he would. Their only concern was when. They did not assume an unlimited time to carry out their evil. They knew the calendar had been marked, the day had been set, that judgment would come. And the days of sinful men are numbered too. You will either, in your rebellion, by repenting now of your sins and turning to follow Christ in faith, or God will end your rebellion on the day of judgment and the terrible pronouncement of eternal hell. The wise man repents. The wise man turns to Jesus. The wise man recognized that he is the Son of God, the Chosen One of God, who has come into the world not first to condemn the world, but to save the world through his sacrifice. Be wise. Recognize Jesus. Come to him and be saved. And Christian, the response of these demons as we close has a lot to teach us too, doesn't it? Look how loudly they proclaim that Jesus is the Holy One of God and the Son of God. Verse 33 there. It's at the, at the top of their voice, really. He cried out with a loud voice. Verse 41. Shouting. That's how they acknowledge Jesus. Do we acknowledge Jesus as loudly? As boldly? Well, Christian, are we, have we been in some measure ashamed to proclaim his name? We must not let demons proclaim Christ more boldly than we do. 
If we're ashamed of Jesus before men, what does he say? He will be ashamed of us before his Father in heaven. And, and Christians, consider how the demons obey Jesus. They don't just proclaim him, they, they obey him. And the question is, are we quicker and more joyful in our obedience to Christ than demons are? They, they obey him because he exercises raw authority toward them, but with us, he exercises not only authority, but love. It's his love that should move us to joyful obedience, shouldn't it? Quick obedience. Let us resolve not to allow demons to acknowledge and obey Jesus more than we, or more quickly than we, acknowledge and obey the Lord who loves us and gave his life for us. So Jesus came in Luke chapter 4, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He went throughout all the region of Galilee, preaching that good news. And the preaching of that good news has continued for 2,000 years down to our day. We still live in the day of God's favor. While we have opportunity to hear the gospel and to believe it, it is the day of God's gracious favor. It's a day not to be wasted but treasure, to whether for the first time or again as a seasoned Christian, drink in the realization that Christ is for us, prophet, priest, and king. He has endured every temptation that all of humanity would have failed. He has brought good news of salvation that all of humanity needed. And he is exercising his kingship for the blessing of all of those who've been broken by the fall, whether in sickness and disease or any other malady. Christ is for us the sufficient Savior, the only Savior. This is another day we're given to enjoy his favor. Drink deeply. Drink deeply. Let's pray together. Our precious Lord and God, we do give you praise for all that you have done for us. It is impossible to record it all. All of the grace, all the mercy, all the kindness, the patience, the love that you have shown toward us. You have persevered with us in our sin. You have followed us in our wandering. You have reclaimed us in our rebellion. You have loved us even as we rejected you. Oh, Father, we give you praise for sending Christ your Son. And we pray even now that you would give the gift of repentance and faith and eternal life to someone here this morning who doesn't yet know you. May they feel their, their hearts opened and their, their minds opened with a fresh love for Christ, with a, a fresh interest in him, with a fresh and new and wonderful desire to follow him. May they feel, as it were, their, their mind changed their, where they didn't yet know him or love him. Now, now they cannot help but think of him, to serve him and him only. Grant, O oh Lord, we pray this day, Radical conversion through the preaching of your gospel. 
here and in every church this morning where your gospel is being proclaimed, we pray that you would save men and women and bring them into your love. That you would save boys and girls and bring them into your fatherhood. Show, O Lord, your grace and favor, we pray. The day of your judgment is appointed. It is coming faster than we know, and our life is even shorter. Help us, O Lord, to turn to you with fresh zeal. To trust you more deeply. To serve you more faithfully. 2016 will hold much grace from you. And we will experience many stumblings and failures. It's why we praise you for your grace. We don't resolve to be perfectionists. We don't resolve this morning to live in our own strength. We resolve this morning to flee again to Christ our high priest. To come again to the one who has gone before us into the heavens. The one who was tempted as we were yet without sin. The one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. And find from him again and again grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Thank you for being such a lowly, loving Savior. Bless us, O Lord, we pray now in Jesus' name.